If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or someone around you does that you could look on with, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of John, Gospel of John and chapter 11. John and chapter 11. We're going to uh, read verses 1 through 27, but uh, as we'll go, we'll kind of make notes of some of the other things that happen in chapter 11 that we're not going to read from the beginning. So please do have your Bible with you um, and open as we go through this together. It's John 11, verses 1 through 27. Next week, we'll jump back into the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13. Uh, So we look forward to that as well. But it'll be behind me on the screen in my translation for you to follow along there. Uh, if you need to. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. John chapter 11, the Holy Spirit says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I got to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. In your life, you will be asked many questions, the answers to which will have a significant impact on your future, and present. Some of these questions will be internal, right? What career do I want to have? What college do I want to go to? Should I ask her to marry me? Where should I live? Will I have enough money to retire? Other questions will be external, right? What what do you want to do with your life? Do you want to buy the house? Will you marry me? Will you take this job offer? Do you want to advance 
in your career? These are some of the questions that every person asks and is asked during their lifetime. But of all the questions that we will face in life, what is the most important? Is there one? Is there one maximally important question? Albert Einstein said that the most important question a person can ask is, is the universe a friendly place? Now, I'm not sure what he meant by that, but that's what he said. The supercomputer in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy allowed the people to ask it one question that it would answer. And so they asked, what is, this is a good one, what is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? They said that was the ultimate question, and they were dismayed when the computer responded 7.5 million years later that the answer to life, the universe, and everything was 42. Another suggests that the most important question we can answer is one we pose to ourselves. Why am I here? Another suggests the most important question is, how can I live life to the fullest, or how can I make the most of life? Another might say that the most important question we can ask, be asked, and answer is, how can I make the world a better place? All of these fail incredibly short of what the actual most significant question we must answer is. It isn't that these questions don't matter, you understand, but they don't matter much when compared to the most important question of all. This question surpasses them all as being asked of you today. And it follows a statement. Same question that a grieving woman named Martha was asked 2,000 years ago. Here's the statement, okay? From the lips of Jesus, and I want them to sink into your very bones. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the statement, and what a statement that was. But now here's the question, and it's the most important question of all. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? The question isn't, do you simply mentally assent to certain facts about a man named Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago? The question isn't, do you come from a family that said they mentally assented to those facts? The question isn't, do you get warm and nostalgic feelings around Christmas and Easter? Do you believe, asked Jesus, that I am resurrection embodied? Do you believe, he asks, that I am life shown up in a person? Do you believe, he asks, that allegiance to me results in eternal life? Do you believe that resurrection and life only come via attachment to me and nowhere else? Do you believe this? This is the most important question of all. It matters, yes, where you live, right? And what college you go to. It matters, yes, who you marry, where you work, and what house you buy. But in 10,000 years, that house, that college, that job will not even be a memory, but you will still be alive. And Jesus says, how you live in 10,000 years is a result of how you answer this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? But not only will the answer to that question affect your eternity, it'll affect how you live your life in the here and now. In other words, belief in the resurrection of Jesus, belief that Jesus himself is resurrection, is not merely an exercise, an ethereal affirmation of certain facts. 
Though, of course, that matters, but it's more than that. It is allegiance to and possession of Jesus himself. He himself is the truth upon which everything depends. Answering Jesus' question makes all the difference in the world. Now, you know the scene we're considering this morning, don't you? It's one of the most famous scenes in all the Bible, and for good reason, right? But as we consider it together in our time this morning, we need to realize that this scene isn't pointing to itself. It's a signpost of what is to come in Jesus' own life. So this story of Lazarus is not even about Lazarus. It's about Jesus. It isn't about what Lazarus went through in his death and being resurrected by Jesus. It's about Jesus, what he will endure in his death and in his resurrection. And that Jesus isn't just someone who has been resurrected. He is resurrection. As Gary Birch said, the Lazarus story is a vehicle to take us elsewhere, to help us reflect on the confidence and power of the person of Christ and to wonder at the truth and glory of his presence on earth. So the story opens with a word getting to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is ill and that his sister Mary, sisters Mary and Martha want Jesus to come to them. Our author makes it abundantly clear, yes, that Jesus loves Lazarus and his sisters, doesn't he? The word from Lazarus' sisters is what? Is it Lazarus is ill? No, it's, it's the one whom you love is ill. And they assume Jesus knows exactly who they're talking about. Then in verse 5, you see the author says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, consider first, I want you to consider how Jesus responds to this news. Okay? First he says that the illness does not lead to death. Then he says that this is happening for the glory of God so that God may be glorified through it. Now, this is an interesting response because if we're doing our math right and consider that Lazarus was dead four days when Jesus got to him, it means that when Jesus says this illness does not lead to death, he actually has knowledge that Lazarus is already dead by the time the message even got to him. So what gives? I want you to consider in light of what verse 11 says. Our friend Lazarus has what? Fallen asleep, but I go and what? Awaken him. Now disciples, they're very literally thinking about this, right? Because they're saying, if he's just asleep, why don't somebody just shake him, right? Why don't shake his shoulder real hard and get him up? Or make his alarm go off or throw some water on him to wake him up. Uh, we, we don't need to go there and risk death if he's merely asleep. Well, Jesus, of course, uses sleep as a euphemism for what? Dead, as both Jesus and our author explain. But for Jesus, Lazarus' illness did not lead to his death, but was merely sleep. But he did die, didn't he? He did die. He wasn't merely taking a prolonged nap. He was really dead. But Jesus' conception of death is not the same as ours is, especially not in light of the resurrection. In light of the resurrection... Death is akin to sleep for those that are attached to him who is resurrection. Why? Because attachment to Jesus as both resurrection embodied and the one who was resurrected means that you too will be resurrected bodily just like he was. So death is a transition, do you see, from this old age to the new age. Understand, Jesus isn't minimizing death. He isn't saying, oh, no big deal, Lazarus died, but that doesn't mean that much because he'll rise again. 
That, that can't possibly be his posture if in verse 35 he weeps with those who mourn. He weeps even as he knows he is about to raise Lazarus because he grieves over what sin has done, which has made death necessary. We say, don't we? Don't we say this? Death is natural. Don't we say that? That's not true. That's not true at all. It's true that we all die. But death isn't natural when God created man. Death was not the created intent. But when sin entered the world, so did death with it. Says Russell Moore, Darwinian naturalism, along with the most contemporary philosophies, assume that death is the natural ending point to life. The Christian gospel insists otherwise, seeing death as an alien invader of the cosmic order, a curse from the Edenic fall, and a strategy of an enemy spirit to crush God's image-bearing humanity. Jesus has come to conquer death because death is the enemy. Jesus hates death. It's the greatest enemy of all. Paul says it's the final enemy. So Jesus isn't minimizing it when he calls it sleep, but because he comes to conquer it and bring in the new world into the old, he could call it sleep. See, we moderns actually do tend to do our best to not think about death. Isn't that true? We do everything we can to abate it, try to escape it. We don't want to look older. But we don't want to seem like we're getting older because we want to stop the march of time. We don't even do funerals anymore. We do celebrations of life. Where the majority of the service is taken up by what? People telling stories about the deceased. We don't even say someone died. We say they passed away. We have caskets that are made to look like plush oversized jewelry boxes. Our graveyards are well-kept botanical gardens. Cemeteries, you know, used to be attached to church grounds. Now we've moved them elsewhere or built on top of them because seeing them might hurt the attractionalism that we've given ourselves over to in the church. I mean, how many new churches do you see when they're thinking about buildings say, where will we put the cemetery? All of this is our move towards not having to think about death too much. But we need to face the reality of death and stop either pushing it to the part of our brain we don't want to access nor dress it up as anything but the ultimate enemy. Jesus is telling us here that he has come to die in order to defeat death, but death can only be defeated if he himself dies and subsequently rises bodily from among the dead. He, as resurrection embodied, defeats death through his resurrection, but unless we see that death is an enemy, the enemy, that it ravages the very stars, and that no matter how much we want to push it out of our modern minds, we are all going to die. Therefore, we have to make a decision concerning he who is resurrection. This is the enormity of the resurrection. Without, without the resurrection, death is finality that we cannot escape. Death is the end, and that's it. Well, then no wonder we don't want to think about it. No wonder we want to push it off and chagrin even the appearance of getting older. If there is no resurrection, what's the alternative? What do secularists who deny the resurrection have to offer instead? 
nothing. You die, and that's that. If what we see is all there is, then there's no hope, no future. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection, then yeah, eat, drink, tomorrow we die. Further, if this life is truly all there is, then there's no meaning in your pain and your suffering, is there? Your sorrow doesn't mean anything, and your struggles are just the result of atoms bumping around in a pointless universe that ends in vast nothingness. If your life is hard, that's, you know, just the roll of the dice that befell you, isn't it? From an unfeeling and uncaring, inanimate cosmos. That's a resurrectionless world. How abysmal. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay after World War II when the possibility of nuclear war loomed and people feared that civilization itself could come to an end. And Lewis wanted to know, what did you think everything was leading to before atomic bombs were created? He said, where do you think all of human effort was leading? He said, the whole story is going to end in nothing if there's no resurrection. If nature is all that exists, he said, then all of human civilization will eventually die with the death of the sun, and so humanity will turn out to have been an accidental flicker, infinitesimally short in relation to oceans of dead time which proceed and follow it, and there will be no one to remember it. That's if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then that's where all this leads. But what if there is a resurrection? What if Creator God descended to earth and entered our mess and himself died as we die, yet without sin, and absorbed our penalty and then came back from among the dead? Then all of history is flowing towards a future wherein all things are made new and death is defeated once for all where we can face death as it really is, the enemy of all enemies, but an enemy that has been conquered by him who is resurrection and life. Then there's hope. Then your pain means something. The resurrection means that even our pain is for a purpose. If there's no resurrection, what purpose is there for your struggle? What does the humanist say? If there is no resurrection, then all your pain leads where? Nowhere. Nowhere. It was for nothing. But with the resurrection, with a God who actually knows your pain and weeps along with you, it means that all your sorrow, pain, suffering, all of it, all of it is leading to growth now and in the end, a future wherein all of that will be no more. Now you see that here? Because here's another perplexing thing that's happening in this story. Jesus is told Lazarus is sick, but he stays how much longer? He stays for two more days before he heads to Bethany, which would have been a day's journey itself. Now, here is perhaps this is perplexing stuff piling on top of itself. The most perplexing part of them all. Jesus says that the illness happened so that God might be glorified. And that it was good that he wasn't there before Lazarus died. Don't you say that? It gets more perplexing. Do you see verse 5 and 6? Look at 5 and 6 again. These two can be translated, Jesus loved them enough to wait two more days. Jesus loved them enough to make them wait for him to come to them 
So if, if we were to ask, which we want to, right, why did Jesus wait two days to go to Lazarus? The text says for two reasons, for God's glory and because Jesus loved them. Now, we're still confused a little bit, aren't we? Now, let's consider it from Mary and Martha's point of view. Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then what, what does Mary say in verse 32? Same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. From their perspective, if Jesus would have just come to them in time, Lazarus would still be alive. So rather than rebuking Jesus, which is what it kind of seemed like on first blush, they're stating that they have faith that Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' death, which of course is true. And it's at this point we can all relate to these sisters, can't we? How often in your life have you said, if only, to something? If only this would have happened. If only this wouldn't have happened. If only they would have done this differently. If only I would have done it differently. If only I would have said this. If only if they hadn't said that. We've all played those kinds of scenarios in our heads, haven't we? Where we wonder if only we could go back and alter something in our past, maybe things would be better. Or some painful experience could have been prevented for us or our loved ones. We've all had experience where we wonder why God's timing doesn't line up with our own. Have you had that happen to you? Mary and Martha wondered. We all wonder sometimes why God seems to be silent. We wonder why God allows some things to befall us or our loved ones. We wonder what he's up to in his delays. Don't you do that? But see, Mary and Martha, they didn't see verses 1 through 17, did they? Nor did they know what would come in 38 through 44. But Jesus did. And we can be honest, can't we? This safe space. We sometimes wonder during painful experience if God loves us in the way we've always been told. Because there are times it seems like he's absent. But what does this text tell us? More than that, what do the events that this story is pointing to in Jesus' own death and resurrection tell us? Could it be that the things, even the bad and the unpleasant things that happen to you are for your good and God's glory? Could it be they are for the strengthening of your faith, similar to how Jesus designed this delay for the faith of disciples to be strengthened and for the faith of the sisters to be tested? Could it be that God is up to something you don't see and may not see till much later or maybe not at all in this life? Is that possible? See, all these perplexing things going on in the scene are designed by Jesus to show his power over life and death and for God to be glorified. Is it possible that this is what he's trying to do in your life too? Even through the most confusing and painful circumstances. Tim Keller put it like this. He said, if an all-powerful and all-wise God were directing all of history with this infinite number of interactive events towards good ends, it would be folly to think we could look at any particular occurrence and understand a millionth of what it will bring about. In another place, he said, God will, this is such a great line, listen to what he said, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. If Mary and Martha knew what we know, what we see Jesus doing that they cannot do you think they would have changed a single thing about their circumstances? No. Why? Because 
They would know everything had to happen this way for God's glory and for Christ's power over even death itself to be evident. That this was done to show that he is the bringer of a better age. It had to happen this way. You know, every Easter, I can't help but to think of Johnny Erickson Tada, who I consider a modern hero of the faith. Some of you have heard me mention her before. She was uh, only 17 when she was paralyzed from the neck down. And now she's 73. She compares life to a tapestry. You know the backside of a tapestry. You've seen the backside of a tapestry, right? It's kind of chaotic, isn't it? They have frayed strings. They seem like an incoherent kind of pattern going on. But what happens if you step on the other side of it? She said, on earth, the underside of the tapestry is tangled and unclear. But in heaven, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. This will be one of those fringe benefits not essential for eternal happiness, but simply nice to know. We'll see that nothing, absolutely nothing was wasted and that every tear counted and every cry was heard. In another place, she said, Today, as I look back, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. In the four days between their brother's death and Jesus' arrival, the sisters only know delay. But Jesus is up to something, wasn't he? Just because they don't see it at the time doesn't mean that he doesn't have a reason for all of this. And my friend, when you are going through hardships, just because you can't conceive of anything good coming out of it, that doesn't mean that there isn't good that God intends and designed. There's no resurrection. Can we say that? Can we say that there's no resurrection? If Jesus isn't resurrection and life that we know and love right now, can we say that? Jesus didn't show up in time to heal Lazarus and prevent his death because he wasn't interested in mere healing miracle. Could he have healed Lazarus and averted his death? Could he? Absolutely could. He could have circumvented all their mourning, all their waiting, and all their pain. And the sisters declare this truth. But then he wouldn't have demonstrated the power of God to bring dead things to life and thus point to his own death and resurrection. We go so far as to say that Lazarus had to die in some sense for Christ's power over death to be shown. And if this is a signpost, then what is it saying? That Christ had to die to do the same thing but to an infinitely greater degree because unlike Lazarus, Jesus would not die again. And neither will you if you're attached to him. Lazarus' death was for the purpose of showing Jesus' mastery over the grave. It was to be a signpost to his, sin, his own death and to declare that the tomb cannot hold Lazarus. It surely cannot hold the Son of God. This scene shows us, as great as this miracle of Jesus raising a four-day-old corpse from the dead was, something even greater was coming that he himself would endure and conquer. We know we should have faith, Right? Oh, we're told all the time to have faith. But sometimes, again, safe space, right? It's hard, isn't it? Sometimes there's a breakdown, yes, between our, our own words proclaiming faith 
and our actions. And sometimes we're tempted to believe only what we can figure out. And this happens both to the disciples and Martha. Jesus says, let's go to Bethany. And the disciples, they don't like that because last time they were there, the people wanted to kill them. That's why Thomas says, okay, let's just go die with him then. Notice, too, how Martha says in verse 22, following her statement, if only you had been here, she says that even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. That's a big declaration of faith. But then when Jesus goes to the tomb in verse 38 and he says, remove the stone, who is it that speaks up that says, I'm not sure this is a good idea? It's Martha who just said Jesus can do whatever God says. She says, by this time, the body will stinketh, right? That's the King James English, by the way. So which is it? Can God do anything or no? Well, for Martha, it's, it's both, isn't it? She does believe that God can do anything. She does believe that if Jesus had been there, he could have prevented Lazarus's death. But she also can't, as of yet, conceive of the idea that Jesus can resurrect her brother on the spot. I think we often hover between faith and doubt too, don't we? Of knowing God is sovereign, but also sometimes not conceiving of him using certain things or circumstances for our good and his glory. We're told today that faith, doubt, and worship can't coexist. Martha shows that that's a modern invention and a lie. God's glory is what's ultimately in view here. God's glory is the issue, and Jesus flat out tells them in verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Without Jesus' delay, right? And without his allowing Lazarus to die, his glory would not be manifested as powerfully as it is when he calls into the tomb for Lazarus to get up and walk out. Think about this. Even if Jesus had let Lazarus die and then came right when he got word, okay, he still would have resurrected him. But the people would see it more as a resuscitation because there was a common Jewish belief that the soul of a person stayed with a body for three days before departing to the realm of the dead. That's what they thought. But Jesus waits four days, doesn't he? Why? Because it would leave no doubt in the people's mind that this was a manifestation of the glory of God. It would show that Jesus isn't doing some parlor trick or some medical resuscitation, but there's no doubt the power of God manifested itself in Jesus who raises people from the dead. It shows that Jesus isn't someone who only will be resurrected, but that he, what, is resurrection right now. He is resurrection and life in a person, and he's the only one. Now see this exchange again in verses 21 through 27. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. Now we know, don't we, that he's talking about taking place in like a half hour. But Martha doesn't. She says, yes, he will rise in the resurrection at the end of the age, right? This common belief among Jews that there would be a general resurrection at the end of the age, but that's not what Jesus means here, is it? That's when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now I will be and some, not in some distant future, he says, I am presently right here, right now, in this place, at this time, resurrection and life. One writer said, Jesus suddenly changed resurrection from a what and when question to a who question. 
He changed it from a passive verb, someone who was raised from the dead, to an active and personal noun. We're still waiting for the resurrection on the last day. That's our future hope. But he is that resurrection. Right now, acting, saving, redeeming, setting things right, remaking creation into something better than ever. And here's the crux, right? We must believe that Jesus resurrected bodily from the dead after atoning for the sins of his enemies in order that they might be redeemed. We must believe that at the end of the age, Jesus will judge the living and the dead and resurrect those who have given allegiance to him in the same way that he was resurrected. We agree with Martha here. This is basic Christian orthodoxy. But friends, Jesus is telling us here that our hope isn't merely in the future. Don't you see? It, it is. Let's get that straight. But Jesus is telling you and me in this very moment that you can know resurrection now. There's the possibility of being made new now. There could be purpose in your pain. There could be rest for the weary now. There could be forgiveness now. There could be reconciliation now. There could be life lived for another better world now. And what this means with the fact that Jesus is offering resurrection and life, which only he can provide right now in this life, must mean that apart from him, we are dead. It means that as, as we have been left to our own devices, we've done nothing but contribute to our own deadness. And friend, when, when you are dead, you cannot will yourself back to life through grit and determination. You've never seen a corpse pull itself up by its own bootstraps, have you? Dead means dead. And just as we want to dress over and minimize and not think too much about physical death, we assuredly do our best to mask over, ignore, or pretend that we're not spiritually dead either. This is why we fill our lives with a million distractions and diversions and minimize sin's enormity and effects. Surely you've noticed that in recent years, film, TV, and video game genre became increasingly popular centering around zombies. Have you noticed that? They're everywhere. The most popular have been like The Walking Dead. Right now it's The Last of Us, World War Z, things like that, right? Why? Uh, why the rise in popularity of a genre about zombies of all things? One uh, Stanford University professor wrote extensively on why she thinks our culture is seemingly obsessed with post-apocalyptic genre a zombie genre, and she wrote this, the ethical decisions that the survivors have to make under duress and the actions that follow those choices are very unlike anything viewers would have done in their normal state of life. And so viewers are drawn to the fantasy. Do you see? And this may be so. People like putting themselves right in the shoes of their characters and wondering, how would I respond to this? But here's the truth of our fallen state. We're less like the survivors of those shows and movies, and we're more like zombies. Why? Because as Mark Roberts said, zombies experience no real pleasure in life, but still they keep trudging on in search of something that will never satisfy them. They are driven, insatiable, unhappy, helpless, and barely conscious, just like many people in today's world. The Bible doesn't say that we're semi-conscious. It says there were spiritual corpses. So what do we need? We need resurrection, and we need life. We need most in the world, whatever you came in here today thinking is the most, the, the thing in the world that you need the most, is almost never what we think it is. 
What you need most in this life is not what you've been told it is. What you need most in the world is not what advertisers will tell you a thousand times today what it is. You don't simply need more of that which already does not fill you. We think, don't we? Don't we do this? If I just had this, you ever think that? If I just had that, if I just had a better marriage or a better family or a better house or a better job or a better car, a better relationship or more financial stability, then I would have what I need. Then I'd be whole and satisfied. And you know, maybe you will feel a little better if you do that. But guess what? You'd still be dead. You still lack that which you need most of all. Friend, listen. You ultimately don't need better relationships. Not ultimately. You don't need a put-together family. You don't need an impressive resume or a sweet retirement for people to think well of you or an awesome house or a bunch of good vacations or successful kids or more leisure time. You need your sins forgiven. You need to be raised from the dead and given spiritual life. You need a savior, and only one will do. You and I are dead apart from a move of God, and we are dead now without resurrection and without life. You and I are as dead spiritually as Lazarus was physically on the fourth day, and we stinketh. We need to be brought to life. We don't need to be merely resuscitated We aren't simply slumbering and just need our shoulders shaken or our alarm to sound. But again, we don't just need a thing called resurrection and a thing called life. We don't need a thing called grace and another called forgiveness. And Jesus doesn't just sit and dole out these things called grace and forgiveness and resurrection and life from a distance to the morally upright and religiously put together. What he gives is himself. And he gives it to helplessly dead people. Because in with himself is all those things of grace and forgiveness and resurrection and life. When Jesus says in verse 25 that he is the resurrection and life, he also says that whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Do you see that word? I want you to look. Verse 25. See that word in? Believes in me? That word in Greek ordinarily translates as into. So whoever believes into Jesus shall live, which sounds clunky in English, but it's Jesus saying that receiving resurrection and life now, as well as a future resurrection like his, comes only as a consequence of union with him. What we need most today is not something from Jesus. We need Jesus. We need him if we are to have fullness of life. We need him if we are to have resurrection spiritually now and physically at the end of the age. We need him if we're to have life at all. Only attachment to him will give us what we need the most. He can't give to us anything divorced from his person because in his person is everything. Union with him is the only resurrection and it's the only life. You know, I've heard people talk about uh, so much about grace, but very little about Jesus. Much of forgiveness, but little of Jesus. Much of abundance of life, but little of Jesus. Much of heaven, but little of Jesus. Much of family values, but little of Jesus. Much of Christian ethic, but little of Jesus. But don't you see that everything is rubbish if Jesus isn't the gem, the prize, the center, and the hero? Rubbish. 
Paul says in Philippians 3, when he says that he counts everything as dung, refuse, garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus and being known by him. That all you wanted in the whole of the universe was to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, that his only hope in life and in death was to obtain resurrection out of the dead. And Paul says in Colossians, Jesus is, is life, and he is all. God showing his love for us. It's not like we might show our love for someone by giving them gifts. God's love is self-giving love, and how does he do it? God so loved the world that he gave. Gave what? His son, his only son, who he loves. God's self-giving love reached to such an extent that he gave his son. Again, Jesus gives not some gifts doled out, abstracted from his person. He gives himself. And in him is found everything. How does Jesus give himself? In chapter, John chapter 11, the shadow of death stalks the whole thing. But it's pointing past itself and towards a hill called the place of the skull. Where Jesus himself, the resurrection and the life, will himself hang on an execution stake where he will absorb the wrath of God that our deadness produced, where he will feel the forsakenness of God, where he will be naked and alone, abandon all his friends who promised that they would die along with him, where he'll be mocked and spat on and his clothing will be gambled over, where blood and sweat and water would pour forth from his infant body, where his flesh will be torn and ripped, where he will give himself for dead people like you and like me. That, that can't be the end of the story. And just as the grave could not hold Lazarus, it could not hold this Jesus. Just as Jesus brought life in John 11 where there was only death, he who is life will bring life through the Holy Spirit rising him from among the dead. Where there seemed only defeat, the ultimate victory came walking out of a tomb on that Sunday morning. That's what all this is pointing to, isn't it? You know, many years ago, I traveled to Jerusalem with uh, the school I received my undergrad from. And one of the places I was looking forward to the most, if you get a map of Jerusalem, is a place called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And this is the site, one of the sites that uh, is traditionally thought to house Golgotha, the, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, and the tomb of Jesus. Well, when I got there, I was kind of bummed <laughs> because it was filled wall to wall with people who were sad. Like, you go upstairs, you walk into upstairs where the cross is supposed to have been, and people are, like, lined up to crawl under this table so that they could touch this exposed piece of rock, and they're, like, weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know. Now, here's the thing about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. If you were to go up to a local Arab Christian there in Jerusalem and say in Arabic, can you point me to the Church of Jesus' tomb? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. Just look at you confused. But if you ask them, point me to the Church of the Resurrection, They'll know exactly what you mean. You know why? Because those Arab Christians saw that place as a place of joy and life and not a place of weeping and mourning because to them, that's where death and sin were defeated. And they know that their hope in this life and the next rest in resurrection and life embodied. As Lazarus laid in the tomb, wrapped in burial clothes, as his family mourned, as professional mourners wailed aloud with the rest of the village, the creator of all things had condescended to take on flesh. 
walked up to the tomb. Do you guys get the enormity of that? He commanded the stone be moved aside. And with perhaps tears still drying on his perfect cheek, he said, with the kind of authority that moves mountains and redirects stars and galaxies and holds all things together, Lazarus, come out. And even death itself obeyed and released its victim. Who could do such things? Who is it that even death does what he says? A.W. Pink said, no man's voice is able to pierce the depths of the tomb. But it was one who was more than a man who now spoke, and he said, come forth, not because Lazarus was capable of doing so, but because it was life-giving voice which spoke. The same omnipotent lips which called the world into existence by mere fiat of his word now commanded the grave to give up its victim. It was the word of power which penetrated the dark portals of that sepulcher. Only Jesus' voice is able to bring dead people to life because only Jesus is resurrection and life. Only Jesus was capable of dying for your sins and mine. Only Jesus could be the first fruits of resurrection when he walked out of that grave all those years ago. Jesus is the resurrection and the life right now. In this moment, he lives and it is resurrection, and it is life in a person, and neither resurrection nor life now or in the future are available apart from attachment to him. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in him shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Some of you mentally believe this, but it hasn't taken root in your heart. Some of you don't believe it but your family did, and you think that family heritage is enough. Some of you are still trying to find life anywhere and everywhere but he who is life. Some of you say you know Jesus, but he isn't resurrection and life for you currently because you don't have much to do with him. Some of you are resting on your own goodness or deeds and think that'll be enough to get you life now and when you die. Some of you know that what I've said this entire time about Jesus is true, but you keep putting off, giving him allegiance, coming up with reasons and excuses to delay bending knee to him, because when it comes down to it, you just want to retain control of your life. If any of those describe you, today is the day of resurrection and to receive life. Jesus beckons you in your deadness to come forth and receive him who is resurrection and life. Today is the day to see your passing beauty of Jesus and that he is the only hope you have for resurrection and life here, now, and in the future. Wait no longer and give him your allegiance. Now, others of you have spiritual life that is dried and shriveled up. Some of you are struggling with worries and anxieties of life. Some of you are afraid and suffering because of hardship you or your loved ones are enduring, and some of you are going through things that you can't conceive of anything good coming from them. Some of you are toying with sin instead of putting it to death. Some of you are truly saved, but keeping, keep looking for life in things of earth. And some of you are just tired and just wish you could get some relief. For you, beloved of God, Jesus beckons, come and receive power and comfort from me. I am resurrection and life, and I can bear your burdens. Come to me, and I will give you more than rest, more than resurrection, more than life, more than power. I will give you myself. And in me, you'll find all that you need. 
Now, before we close, there's an illustration that I like to share every Easter. I love it so much. It's from, uh, can you imagine, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Return of the King? Can you, does that surprise you? It happens near the end of the book. After Frodo and his companion Sam finally complete their arduous journey and, and the ring finally is destroyed at Mount Doom, evil has been vanquished, everything could now be set to right. Well, Sam, he falls asleep from his exhaustion, and when he wakes up, he sees wizard Gandalf, who he thought was dead. And Gandalf asks Sam, how do you feel? And this is what Tolkien writes. He says, but Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? He asked. He doesn't ask, will there be no more sadness? He asks, will every sad thing come untrue? Jesus says to that, yes. And we might, like Samwise, say, Jesus, I thought I was dead. And ask at various points in our lives, is everything sad going to come untrue? And at every single point, Jesus says, yes. That's what we're being told in this scene from John 11. And what it points to in Jesus' own suffering and resurrection and exaltation. Every sad thing will come untrue in the end. Because of Jesus but you can experience that new creation right now through attachment to this glorious Christ. He is resurrection and life. He is the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He is everything. Do you believe this?